Leviticus chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 for our scripture reading. Pastor Dale already read it. Let's read it again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a, a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting and all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull, the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on, it, it, which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which shall, he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering, But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull he is is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned. This is God's ancient holy word and let's pray. Lord God, again, we come before you and ask for your help as we confess that these ancient words are given by inspiration of God and are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So Lord, train us in righteousness. Help us to see the profitability of your word and that we might apply it to our lives, that your spirit would be at work through your word to awaken the dead and to sanctify the saved. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was this past month marks the 20th year anniversary of the writing of the hymn In Christ Alone. It was a hymn that was written by Keith and Kristen Getty and Stuart Townen. And uh, it's a beautiful hymn that uh, encapsulates some very important reformational truth. Well, about 10 years ago, a controversy arose when one theologically liberal denomination, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, uh, wanted to change some of the wording of this hymn. Some of the wording that they wanted to change, there's a line in the hymn that says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, the PCUSA did not like that language in the hymn, and they wanted the wording before they were going to allow this hymn to be put in their hymnals. They wanted it changed to, to on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And some of the reasoning and desire to change that hymn was to take out the idea that the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus' death on the cross because often theological liberalism doesn't like the idea of God being a God of wrath, of the idea of a substitutionary atonement. But hopefully you're able to see as we're going through the book of Leviticus, substitution is not something that's invented by the Apostle Paul. Substitution is, a, is an idea that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and we see it in crystal clear manner here in the book of Leviticus. The idea that this blameless animal is going to be slaughtered instead of the worshiper is a concept that we see throughout Leviticus. We saw it in the burnt offerings, or as I like to call the ascension offerings. 
which the primary purpose of the ascension offerings or the burnt offerings was indeed atonement and substitution. Where, again, the sinner would lay his hand upon the animal, the animal would be slaughtered, and the whole of the animal would be consumed in fire on the altar. And that was a unique part of the burnt offering, was the whole of the animal was consumed on the altar. The second that we looked at in chapter 2 was the grain offering. This was the the only non-bloody sacrifice. Uh, I like to call it the tribute offering because it really signified the worshiper coming in obeisance, homage, submitting themselves to the Lord and offering this grain offering before the Lord. And part of that offering was, was given to the priest, but the rest of it was consumed on the altar. The third offering we looked at Remember several weeks ago was the peace offering, the shalomim offering, the offering uh, that celebrated the peace and the reconciliation that was enjoyed between God and the Creator as well as others. And we saw with that offering, it was very unique in that it was a kind of communal covenant meal. It was the only offering in which the worshiper uh, would eat alongside family, friends, and even the priests within the precincts of the tabernacle. And this morning we're going to focus in on what is called the sin offering. And sin is a very raw and literal translation of the word that's translated sin offering here. It's the Hebrew word chata. And uh, it is used numerous times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's used 162 times to speak of sin but then 135 times it's used to speak of the sin offering and so the same word that's used for sin is also used for sin offering and hence why it's called the sin offering and it is interesting when we're going to look at some of the unique distinctives of this offering that's uh, one kind of principle in interpreting and trying to understand these offerings is you want to kind of look for what's different, what nuance is there with, with each of these offerings. And the nuance or the difference with this offering, it was the one offering that was used not only for the atonement of sins for the sinner, but also to purify the, t- the tabernacle and then later on the temple. It, it, this is the one offering I think that, that communicates the utter sinfulness of sin. That sin not only impacts the worshiper, the person, the individual, but it has an infecting nature even wherever the sinner goes. And it shouldn't surprise us that this sin offering would give us instructions about sin. After all, it's called the sin offering. But also when we look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 3, when it's talking about these Old Testament sacrifices that are performed year after year, day after day, it says, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year. For the Old Testament worshiper, the reality of these sacrifices having to be done over and over and over and over and over was a reminder that they sinned over and over and over. And of course, all these sacrifices point to that one great sacrifice of Christ and we're going to see the unique nuance in the way in which this sin offering points to Christ or this purification offering points to Christ. But I I want us primarily this morning to take away four distinctive truths about sin that this sin offering teaches so that we would turn to Christ for our sin problem. The first is that sin is decided by God or sin is determined by God. In other words, God is the one who determines what is sinful and what is not sinful. And what I mean by this is that sin is something that is objective. It is an objective reality that God knows when a person has violated his holy standards, has violated his commands, his law, and is guilty of sin. We see that 
particularly with this sin offering because notice the sins that it deals with. Notice in verse 1. Speak to the sons of Israel. And and by the way, that phrase, speak to the sons of Israel, that is often used when this is kind of a new section throughout the book of Leviticus. And this is a new kind of offering. Those first three offerings were more voluntary offerings. This is an offering that is mandated when a particular sin occurs. Speak to the sons of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally, in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them. So this is a, a, a sacrifice that is to be done when there is an unintentional sin. We may read that and think, well, how could a sin be unintentional? Don't we always make a choice when we sin? Well, this particular sin, I think, is highlighting that it's a sin that's... that's that's not done with flagrancy and willful thumbing of the nose up at God. In fact, uh, one of the commentators, Roy Gain, he says of this unintentional sin, he says, the unintentional sin is a fault or an error that involves some aspect of ignorance. The wrongdoer unwittingly goes astray and violates a divine command without knowing it at the time. The violation can be accidental or the person can know what he or she is intentionally doing in terms of the activity but does not realize that it is wrong. So unintentional sins were sins that involved some level of ignorance. And these unintentional sins are to be contrasted with what Hebrews or I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 15 calls sins of the high hand. And it's literally the Hebrew phrase, the high hand. It's like shaking your fist at God. Numbers chapter 15 records an instance in which God had just given this command that the Israelites on the seventh day of the week were not permitted to work, to do any kind of labor on that seventh day. And... In Numbers chapter 15 and verse 27 through 30, there's a man who begins to go and collect wood to burn on the Sabbath. He engages in labor on the Sabbath, and this is just after this command is given. It was a way of this Hebrew saying, God, I don't care what you say about the days of the week and and not doing labor on the seventh day of the week. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he goes and picks up sticks on the Sabbath and it doesn't go well for him. That is a sin of the high hand. He winds up executed because of that. But what's interesting here is that In the sacrificial system, there were no sacrifices for sins of the high hand. Because sins of the high hand required death. In other words, it was the person himself or herself who became the sacrifice. Who became the object of God's wrath. But the unintentional sins required death. Atonement. We see this carried over into the next chapter as well, where it's not as much unintentional sins that are mentioned, but sins we might call sins of omission. Have you ever heard that phrase before? You have sins of commission. We get the word to commit. Sins where a person does something that God forbids. Okay? And then there's sins of omission, not doing what God commands. And this is what we see in in the next chapter, in chapter 5, where, for instance, a person does not appear in court to serve as a witness. In 5.1, it says, Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, so he's subpoenaed into court to testify as a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, he, then he will bear his guilt. In other words, it's a sin 
not to come into court and to testify to the truth. It's a sin, but it's a sin of omission, not doing what you're supposed to do. Then the second one in verse 2, Leviticus 5.2, is is a person who touches a dead animal. If a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass or an unclean beast, or a carcass of an unclean cattle, or a carcass of an unclean swarming thing, though it is hidden from him, he is unclean, then he will be guilty. So this may be an instance where uh, the, the Israelites weren't allowed to come into contact with something that was dead uh, unless it was offered as a sacrifice on the altar. And were they to come into contact with something that was dead, they weren't permitted to go into the tabernacle. But imagine if you, you know, had a, a bowl of pasta and uh, you went into the tabernacle and then later on that day you go to have leftovers of that pasta and you realize there was a dead fly in it. Okay, disgusting, right? Um, you realize that you had come into contact with a dead fly and, and its remains and you had actually gone into the tabernacle, into the presence of the holy living God, after having come into contact with death, but you didn't realize it. Well, you, you still need to make atonement for that misdeed, for that ritual uncleanness. Another instance of ritual uncleanness in verse 3 of chapter 5, if he touches a human uncleanness of, of whatever sort of uncleanness, uh, maybe with which he becomes unclean and it is hidden from him, then he uh, comes to know of it, he will be guilty. So this might be, you know, human uncleanness would be typically any kinds of bodily fluids, blood or, or other bodily fluids, as we'll see in chapters 12, 13, and 14, because uh, the, the uh, bodily fluid was a sign of death, okay? You know, it's good to have blood pumping through your arteries is not good to have your blood on the ground. That's a sign of death, right? Well, you know, again, imagine, you know, you went to the temple uh, during the day and then later on you realize, you know, your kid scraped his knee on the ground and you're trying to clean him up and you got blood on your shirt and you didn't realize you, you had blood on your shirt when you were in the, the tabernacle. Well, atonement had to be made. Also a rash oath in verse 4 and 5. A person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good. Whatever the matter, matter, a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath and it is hidden from him. Then he comes to know of it. He will be guilty of one in one of these. So again, here's, here's an instance where a person makes a promise and then there's some unforeseen circumstances happen. He's not able to fulfill this promise. He also is guilty. And what I want us to see here is that these are peccadilloes often in our eyes, right? These are the seemingly small sins, right? The unintentional sins, the the sins of omission. But nonetheless, they are sins that are determined by God, that the person is guilty of whether they know it or not. Whether you know it or not, there are many an abundance of sins that you and I are guilty of. Uh, let, let's just think of this one basic sin. The, the second greatest commandment Jesus says is what? And it actually comes from Leviticus, in case you were wondering, is to love your neighbor how much? As much as yourself. Okay. How have you done on that one this morning? <laughs> okay. I know you love yourself because, you know, you came this morning, you clothed your hair, I didn't smell any B.O. on you, you probably bathed, you know, you brushed your teeth, you probably fed yourself, you love yourself. We all love ourselves. How much do we love others as much as ourselves? That's a sin of omission. It, it, It works today even in the law courts. You know, you're driving along and all of a sudden there's lights in your rearview mirror and you realize that a police over is a police officer is pulling you over and he says uh, sir ma'am you are doing 55 in a 45 mile per hour speed limit and you may say oh officer I'm sorry 
I didn't know. But the reality is you're guilty whether you knew it was a 45 mile per hour speed limit or not. And more than likely, that officer might say, take it up with the judge. Of course, unless you're a woman, you start blubbering and then, you know, you might have some compassion. I'm sure that's happened before. But notice in in, in chapter 5 and verse 5, so it shall be when he becomes guilty of one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. These are sins, objectively sins. Sin is an objective reality that is determined by Almighty God of which we are abundantly guilty of. Friends, I don't think we even have an inkling of how guilty we are before the holy and righteous God of the universe. How much we fail to do those things that we ought to do. And how much we fail in doing those things that we ought not to do and often are ignorant of. But nonetheless, we're still guilty of them. We're still guilty. Think of King Josiah. He was that child king enthroned as king at age seven. Any seven-year-olds in here? How would you like to be king when you're seven years old, right? He was king at age seven. And when he grows up and gets into his teenage years, he, he has an order for the temple to be cleaned out. It was filthy. It was overrun. There was all kinds of idolatry that had been taking place. And, and, and he begins to see the need for the temple to be cleaned out. And, and in the course of cleaning out the temple, somebody comes across a scroll of the book of the law. And somebody blows the dust off of this Bible and takes it to Josiah and begins reading from the Word of God and Josiah hears it and all of a sudden his conscience is smote and he sees his guilt and his failure in leading the people of God in the ways of righteousness and he's before God broken over his own sin. Now he was guilty of that sin before he realized he was even guilty. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says the best worship that we ever render to God is far from perfect. Our praises, ah, oh, how many fount and feeble, how, how faint and feeble they are. I mean, think about that for a second. You, you know, we're singing praises to the Lord and often, you know, we're thinking about, you know, the Browns game later on today or, you know, we're thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch and God sees what's in in our heart. Our prayers. Anybody have ADHD when they're praying? You know? You start praying and your thoughts start drifting everywhere. Our prayers, Spurgeon says. He says how wavering they are. When we get nearest to God, how far off we are. When we are most like He, how greatly unlike we are from Him. This I know that my tears need to be wept over. My faith is so mingled with unbelief that I have to repent of that sad admixture. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes fixed on the blood of Jesus. There is no prayer, no praise that can come before God in and of itself for it is so imperfect. Our sin is often mingled in with even our righteous deeds. It was the early church teacher Augustine who talked of our righteous deeds even as believers as splendid sins because they're often mixed with sinful motives. Certainly the sin offering teaches us that sin is determined by God. And, 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 and friends, sometimes we can 
fall into this trap of, of thinking sin is something that's merely subjective, whether I know it or not. And we, we use phrases like, well, it's not against my conscience. And, and it's true that our conscience is our knowledge of right and wrong, and, and that's all we can go by. But our conscience is fallible. Our conscience can err. It's God and His Word that is the standard of righteousness and our conscience must be informed by the Word of God. And so something can be, it could be that something is not against your conscience and it's sin. And so we need to bring out the standard of God's Word. Well, sin is determined by God, firstly. Secondly, sin has degrees of severity. Back to our passage in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error. I'm sorry. If the anointed priest, I was reading verse 13, verse 3 of chapter 4. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people. Notice this solidarity that the priest had with his people he was a representative the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people then let him offer to the lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin which he has committed now i don't know how many cowboys we have in this room if anybody owns any bulls but i, I i'm not a farmer i'm not not a not a cowboy but I know enough to know that a bull costs more than a sheep, right? A bull can be expensive. A bull had to be slaughtered if it was the priest committing the sin. Verse 4, he shall offer the bull at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the bull, slay it before the Lord. The anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And he shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Now this is very important. He was to take the blood to, to, to sprinkle it, to flick it on the veil in the innermost part of the tabernacle. Okay, this was the, this was the only thing that separated this part of the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies of which the priest, the high priest only could go into only once a year. And so, and it was in that Holy of Holies that you had the Ark of the Covenant. It symbolized the very presence of God. So this was basically the deepest part into the tabernacle except for that one day of the year. It was the same veil, by the way, that was torn in two at the death of Jesus. This veil had to be sprinkled with blood. That's significant because we're going to see with the other, when others commit sins, like the common person, blood didn't need to be sprinkled that deep into the tabernacle. Verse 7. Then he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of a fragrant incense which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting and, and all the bull, blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So the rest of the blood had to be poured out in the basin. Some was sprinkled on the horns of the altar symbolizing that, that the whole of the altar had to be cleansed. So, so the veil had to be cleansed with blood. The seven times is a, is a symbol of completion that goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Remember the seven days of creation? This is a complete creation. Well, well, the sprinkling of the blood seven times is symbolizing complete atonement is being made. Complete purification is being made with this offering. But then not only the veil, but also the altar had to be cleansed. Verse 8 in 9 and 10, we've seen this before, all the fat. The fat had to go to the Lord on the altar and be burned. Verse 11, the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, all the rest of it had to be taken outside the camp in verse 12. And I, I think the significance of this 
is that the priest was not taking any of the sacrifice. Now, why is that important? Because who was the one who committed the sin? It was the priest. And if he's getting to, you know, have barbecue ribs after he sinned, then he's benefiting from his own sin. Or if he gets the hide of the bull, you know, he's benefiting from his own sin. So the priest was not to benefit from any of his own misdeeds. But then notice in verse 13 and 14. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel comes, commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, you may say, well, how, how might something like this happen? Well, you remember in the book of Joshua, God had given orders to the Israelites that they were to destroy all the people of the land of Israel. The land had to be purged of all of its sexual immorality and perversion and wickedness and child sacrifice that was going on. All the land had to be purged and so they had to destroy all the people groups. They weren't allowed to make covenants with any of those, those uh, uh, people in the land or the neighbors to that land. But do you remember those crafty Gibeonites? The Gibeonites, they, you know, they, they, you know, it was like, uh, you know, they, they got up in costumes, just like many people are this weekend, and, and, and their costume was, was acting as if they had walked many miles away, you know, and they made their hair all disheveled and put dirt on their clothes and said, we've come from a far off land, when they actually were from like right around the corner. We've come from a far off land and we've heard of your great power and we've come to, we've come in peace. We want to enter into a covenant relationship with you so you don't destroy us. And, and you remember Joshua and the Israelites entered into a covenant with them. And then they come to realize later that they weren't from Timbuktu. They were from right next door. And, and so they became aware of it. This would be, again, a kind of sin committed in ignorance by the whole congregation. Well, well, what's to happen in this instance? And it escapes the notice of the assembly. The assembly is probably uh, a delegation of leaders in verse 13. And they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done. Then they become guilty. Verse 14, when, uh, when the sin they committed becomes known... Then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. So for this deal, it had to be a bull, much like when the priest sinned. And also similar, uh, some of the blood, if, if we keep reading uh, in verse 16, 17, similarly, the finger into the blood and sprinkled seven times in front of the altar, or I'm sorry, on the veil, and then also verse 18, same thing with the horns of the altar. Same thing with the fat in verse 19 and 20. So if the whole congregation sins, it's, similar, it's the same deal. A bull, sprinkling of the blood on the veil, sprinkling of the altar with blood. But then notice in verse 22, when a leader, and this is probably either a clan leader, maybe a tribal leader, this is an individual He's not a priest, but he's, he's a leader probably of our group of families in ancient Israel. He sins unintentionally and does any one of the things which the Lord God has commanded him not to be done. Then he becomes guilty. Verse 23, if the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering. Notice, what is it? It's not a bull. This time it's a goat. A male without defect. Same thing, laying his hands on the head. Verse 25, some of the blood of the sin offering is to put his finger, it's to be put on the horns of the altar, not the altar that's closest to the veil. This now is on the other altar that's closer to the exit of the tabernacle. This goes on the burnt offering altar. And then the rest of the blood is to be poured out. So again, now, so when a clan leader in Israel sins, the blood doesn't go as far deep into the altar. It's not the same animal. It's a goat. It's not a bull. Now drop your eyes to verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord... So this is, you know, this is Joe, Bob, Bill who commits this unintentional sin. This is not... He's not a clan leader. He's not a priest. 
It's not the whole congregation that's sinning. What are they to do? Verse 28, if the sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring the offering a goat. Not even a male goat, now it's a female goat for the sin which he has committed. Again, he's to lay his hand on the head. It's the same actually with the, with the clan leader. The, the, the altar is to be sprinkled in verse 30. Not, not the, the inner altar, but the burnt offering altar. And so what, what do we see here? We see that there is a varying degree of severity of the sin based upon who's committing the sin. Now, that, that doesn't really bode well in our egalitarian culture, right? Well, we all should be counted as equals. <laughs> but nonetheless, we know that if a leader sins, a high priest sins, a pastor sins, it has a greater effect upon more people. And is therefore a more severe sin. Uh, just think in your mind the way in which Jesus dealt with, say, the woman at the well. Versus how he dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think there was a little bit different tone. There was. Why? The severity of the sin. It's not that either of them were without sin. They were both without sin. But when one is in a position of leadership, there is a greater sin that is committed. It could be the same sin, but it's a greater sin because it influences and impacts more people. I mean, think just even of false teaching, the impact that a church leader can have upon a multitude of people by teaching doctrinal error is great. It's a lot greater than the person who just imbibes that error and isn't involved in teaching others that error. And it may not even be necessarily false teaching. It could be just a, a slight error. You know, that you've heard of the carpenter's law of angles of which I know nothing about, but I've heard about, you know, when, when, when you're building something, if the angle is just, just a small degree off at the, the angle, it's going to have greater air, greater problems the further you go out. And it's that way when it comes to sins... In leadership, there are varying degrees of sin before God. I hope you understand that. I think one of the great evangelical errors that we've imbibed, based off of misunderstanding, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit murder, but I say unto you, even if you have anger in your heart, one of the great misinterpretations of that passage is that murder is the same as anger. It's not. And you're glad it's not, you know. You'd rather have your wife or your husband irritated with you than your wife or husband to put a bullet in your head, right? Can I get an amen, okay? All right, it's not the same, okay? It's not the same. That they're, they're, Murder is more serious. What Jesus was teaching there is that just because you haven't committed murder with your hands doesn't mean you're innocent, There still are sins in the heart. All sin is not equal. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, just after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, because if the miracles performed in these ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon have been performed among you, they would have repented. But there will be a greater judgment, Jesus says, for you. In other words, they had more knowledge. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They witnessed his miracles, and they still rejected him in their sin was greater their hell would be hotter and so friends I, I think this is an important principle it teaches us that there are varying degrees of sin that while all sin as R.C. Sproul says there, there's, all sin is cosmic treason there still are varying degrees of treason there still are varying degrees of sin before God 
This is why in the New Testament, James 3.1 says, not many of you should become what? Teachers, for they will incur a stricter judgment. It is Reformation weekend, so we have to quote a Protestant reformer. I choose the French reformer, John Calvin. He says, the more illustrious was his dignity, the more diligently and zealously ought his life to be confirmed to the model of holiness. In other words, the greater dignity of a person's authority, leadership, the more diligently and zealously a person's life ought to confirm with holiness. You know, friends, one of the greatest gifts you could give to the elders here at Sovereign Grace Chapel is to pray for us. To pray that we would grow in holiness. We would constantly remain faithful and true to the scriptures. That we would grow in our love for Jesus, our love for other people. Did you know elders are sinners just like you guys are? We encounter the same temptations. And we need to be growing to be more like Jesus because our sin will be more pronounced. It will be greater. Now pray for your own holiness too. But but if you want to give a gift to us, pray for us. Sin has degrees. Sin is determined by God. Thirdly, sin is defiling. Sin is defiling. Did you notice that as we went through this description here in verses 5 through 7? When the priest sins, the detergent of blood had to be sprinkled on the veil and on that closest altar to the veil. When the whole congregation sinned, Blood had to be a detergent sprinkled on the veil and that closest altar. But when it came to a clan leader, when it came to a common person, the blood didn't have to go that far in. Why? Because the common person didn't go that far deep into the tabernacle. In other words, The sin of the sinner has a defiling impact upon his or her surroundings. Sin infects, sin defiles, sin is contagious. It infects that which is around us. And and, and I think this concept can be challenging for us to appreciate, but, but we see it really shot through the scriptures. Perhaps you remember when God appeared to Moses in that burning bush. Remember, he told Moses to take what? Take off his shoes because the ground upon which he was standing was what? Holy ground. So we kind of get that, that the very presence of God was sanctifying the dirt that was around him because God in his blazing holiness was there. We see the same thing with Joshua at the end of Joshua 5 when when he encounters the Lord and and the Lord is decked out in warrior and and, and take, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. But it also works in the reverse. For instance, the reason why God was vomiting, and that's his language, by the way, vomiting the Canaanites out of the promised land was because the land had been infected by their sin. And that's one of the fascinating things, even in the book of Joshua, you remember they go around the city seven times and everything had to be destroyed, almost like a sacrifice unto the Lord. The land had to be purged. It's the same thing when, when, when there was a murder that was committed and no justice had been done, it it says that the land had been infected and their blood cries out from the land. 
We see it also uh, later on in, in Israel's history. In 1 Samuel, remember Eli's boys, Hophni and Phinehas? These were two priests who were involved in wickedness. They were, they were stealing the Lord's sacrifice. They were also involved in sexual immorality in the tabernacle. Or, or um, Yeah, it probably was still the tabernacle at that point. It was probably destroyed by the Philistines probably in that same generation. But do you remember, because of their sin the ark of God was taken out of Israel and, and Ichabod was the name of that child that was born to, to, I can't remember if it was Hophni or Phinehas, and name Ichabod means there is no glory. The glory of the Lord had departed. It's the same thing in the days of Ezekiel when Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God departing from the, from the temple precincts. Why? Sin had so infected the temple, God said, I'm out of here. But in order for God to remain in His presence to be there because of the defiling nature of sin, atonement had to be made. Cleansing had to take place. In fact, it was one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, in verse 16, we, we get, you know, we get some of the symbolism of the, you know, the, the, the lot cast on the two goats and the one goat sent away and the other is slaughtered and and uh, we get that that's for the sins of the people, but perhaps you might not recognize in chapter 16, verse 16, it says, he shall make atonement for the holy place because the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. In other words, the tabernacle itself needed atonement because it had been infected by the impurities and sins of the Israelites and even the high priest. This certainly highlights to us the defiling nature of sin. Sin is always social. It's, it's vertical before God always as well, but it always affects those around us. Often in ways that we are oblivious to. Sin can affect the way we raise our children. If we're coddling some kind of sin in our hearts, we're far less likely to correct and be a help to our children. How about the sin of Gossip. I mean, that's infectious, right? That's defiling. Somebody lays forth a juicy morsel about somebody else and, oh, I didn't know that about them. And you scoop that up and you take it along with you and you pass it on to somebody else. And, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Pretty soon the infection, the defiling nature of sin has spread. Grumbling, complaining. How about that, right? You go to work and uh, uh, everybody around you is complaining and then you start, uh, I know, uh, right? It's like infectious. But, but then you notice the opposite can sometimes be true. Somebody comes around you joyful and thankful and it's like, you know, you just, yeah, I should be joyful, thankful. Sin is defiling, friends. And this, by the way, and, and it has a defiling effect in our lives. It has a defiling effect upon people around us. And this, by the way, is why we so desperately need that which is pictured here in the sin offering, the blood splattered seven times, highlighting the completion of the purification that was offered in the sin offering. Now we have the glory of the crucified and risen Savior in the person and work of the Lord Jesus who comes and He cleanses our hearts and forgives us of our sin and He washes the stains away. And then as that gospel emanates from our heart, it, it has a good effect upon others around us. 
rather than defiling effect. But also, one of the glories of the work of Christ is that we live in the already but not yet. Because sin has defiled this planet. And Jesus isn't through with this planet. I don't know if you knew that. He's not through. He will one day purge this world of sin. If you read the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 22, there's a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And finally, one day, God Himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. In other words, Jesus deals not only with sin, but the defiling effects of sin, namely death, pain, sorrow. We sing it. We sing it around Christmas time with the one hymn that you thought was for the first coming of Christ, but is actually for the second coming of Christ. It's called Joy to the World. Joy to the World. The Lord has come. Yes, He did come in the first coming, but... Isaac Watts was pointing to the second coming. Because one of the lines in that, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as what? The curse is found. Now friend, if you think that was in the first coming, you have an over-realized eschatology. His blessings aren't flowing as far as the curse is found. But one day they will. And this is what the sin offering pictures, portrays to us. Well, we must carry on. Sin is not only determined by God, it has degrees of severity. Sin, thirdly, is defiling, it's infecting. Sin, fourthly, is damning. It's damning. Notice verse 20. He shall do also with the bull, just as he did with the bull, the sin offering, thus he shall do with it. He shall, the, so the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Same thing at the end of verse 26. The priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Verse 31, the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. Atonement, that's one of those churchy words. It simply means at one meant. You could kind of take the etymology of that word, at one meant. Bringing two parties who are at, at, uh, opposed to one another and making them one. Bringing reconciliation This is talking about reconciliation and forgiveness because satisfaction is being made through blood atonement. Which suggests to us, and this is interesting because even the sins that were inadvertent, this is all the sins that are being talked about here in this chapter, in chapters 4 and 5, inadvertent, and sins of omission still needed atonement. Which suggests they deserve death. If atonement was not made for these sins, then the guilt rested upon the guilty person. And so that these sins that we often regard as peccadilloes, Sins of omission, light sins, they too are damning. And in the unfolding revelation of God in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, we learn that the wages of sin is death. Not just temporal death, but eternal death. Because it's contrasted with the next phrase, which, but the free gift of God is what? 
eternal life. So the wages of sin is eternal death. That eternal death or that second death is laid out by the Apostle John in the Revelation where he says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever. The cost of sin, even inadvertent sins, even sins of omission, is damnation. And see, the problem in ancient Israel is that we saw it even in the first 12 verses. Even the priest, the anointed priest, the Christ priest, dare I say, was a sinner. That he might commit inadvertent sins and he needed to bring atonement on behalf of his own sin. An atonement that had to go so deep that it even purified the the inner recesses of the tabernacle which he infected with his inadvertent sins. And so if you were an ancient Jew, an ancient Hebrew... you would have been left wondering, is there any hope? We are all infected by sin. Our representatives are infected by sin. Would there be one who would come along who would be holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners? And the author of Hebrews tells us about him in Hebrews 7.26. It says it is fitting for us to have a anointed priest, a Christ priest, a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled and separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did it once for all when he offered up not a bull but he offered up himself himself my friend have you laid your sins upon the Lord Jesus have you pressed your hand into his head O sacred head now wounded has your faith laid its hand on his head friend you may die you may die soon Tomorrow is not promised for you. Are you ready to die? Have your sins been purified and washed by the blood of the Lamb? You, my friend, need a substitute. And friend, if you have in your hand of faith pressed your hand into the Lord Jesus, And all your sins have been laid on his back. And yes, you need to take sin seriously. Yes, you need to be, as John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will kill you. But also you need to know that whatever self-purging you may try to do, there's all kinds of inadvertent, ignorant, sins of omission that you don't even know about and you still need to be covered by the blood and so you can rejoice if you by faith are trusting in Christ let me close with a story many of us remember where we were on September 11, 2001 unless you were too young maybe not even born yet But for one man named Steve Scheibner, that afternoon was one of shock. Because the day before, on September 10th, he was logged in onto Americans, American Airlines' website as a pilot, and he thought he was supposed to fly on Flight 11 the next day on September 11th. 
He typed in his name. He was certain that he was the pilot for that flight. But he never received back any confirmation, only to check later and see that a pilot named Tom McGinnis had been assigned to the flight instead of him. It was a curious mistake. But sure enough, that next day, Flight 11 took off from Boston Logan's airport, headed for Los Angeles, flew 23,000 feet into the air, engaged in autopilot, and terrorists began to attack. And the result was the death of Tom McGinnis and everybody else who was on that flight. Scheibner said this, I saw where I should have died, but I didn't. Tom sat in the seat that I was qualified to sit in. By all rights, that seat was my seat that day. I should have been in that seat on that day. Tom McGinnis died in the place of Steve Scheidner. As Christians, we of all people should be able to appreciate that. Because we have one who died in our place. Who sat in our seat. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for the sin offering. It teaches us much about, much about sin, but most importantly, it teaches us about the Savior and his purification that he will do. The purification that he has done in taking our place and even the purification that he will do as he purges this world that has been infected by sin and so that one day he will dwell with us without the stain of sin and without any more need for blood atonement. In Jesus' name, amen.